Isaac Newton biography I finished last night and stayed up until late hours preparing notes to read to you on this book and uh, uh, because as I thought I've got to give a devotion one morning and I just finished this book that's all I'm thinking about I'm going to shift gears at 11 o'clock here and try to prepare something else I said no don't shift gears just show them what you learned from this and lessons that why, why do you read a book like this anyway 125 pages Oxford University Press is a fairly responsible academic and yet readable biography of Isaac Newton Gale is a man Gale Christensen and uh, I found it riveting and so I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize it for you and tell you lots of interesting things about Isaac Newton and try to draw some spiritual lessons from it. If I were to choose a text for this, it would be uh, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them and uh, charged them to fill the earth and subdue creation. And Isaac Newton was a creature of God. He was a human being in the image of God and one of the most brilliant men that ever walked this planet in the image of God and as far as I can tell missed it profoundly. Mm -hmm. uh, born Christmas Day 1642 to a semi-illiterate or semi-literate widow father had died three months before he was born. Uh, her name was Hannah. They lived in the village of Colsterworth, England. Went to Cambridge University. His mother wanted him to, she didn't believe in education, didn't know any education, could barely read herself, and so had no academic aspirations for her son whatsoever. And uh, all of his teachers saw brilliance and said, you just can't keep this boy at home. Uh, and so finally she relented and, and he was off to Trinity College, Cambridge and basically spent the next 40 years of his life there. Um, got his B.A. in 1665 and uh, mastered while he was a student the most advanced math of the day. Nobody that was a mathematician in his day had written anything that he hadn't mastered by the time he was done with his BA. By the time he was 25 uh, or 27, he was the most advanced mathematician in the world. Mm. He created calculus. Um, he called it fluxions. The word calculus didn't exist. Fluxions, meaning how do you compute the relations of bodies and the movements of bodies in constant um, velocity and I, I never got the calculus. I couldn't begin to say what it is. Algebra 2 was the end of my, and trigonometry was the end of my line, and I was happy when it was over. The word scientist didn't exist. It was uh, created in the 19th century. He was a natural philosopher, what they called him in those days. He was um, a inventor, discoverer, he discovered uh, the true effects of gravity. Galileo was the one who first said if you drop a feather and you drop a bowling ball and you don't have any air in the way, they'll both hit the ground at the same time, which utterly blew everybody's mind. 
that uh, how, what, what, is, what is gravity then? And he, he went way further in the nature of gravity and how the gravity, um, multiple gravities of every body pulling on every other body in the solar system and in the universe affects its orbits. He's the one who discovered that the planet's orbits are oblates, they're spheres and not circles. And um, he was doing all this in the 1600s discovering these kinds of things. He discovered the nature of light as the composite of all the colors by his sophisticated work with prisms. Um, there's a quote. By flinging gravity across the void, Isaac Newton united physics and astronomy in a single science of matter in motion, fulfilling the dreams of Pythagoras, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, and countless others in between, and while Newton was unable to discover the true cause of gravity itself, a giant riddle still, the laws he formulated provide convincing proof that we inhabit an orderly and knowable universe. So just a parenthesis here. That sentence right there, that little, um, a, um, a giant riddle still, when I read that uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was on page 76, it was before T for G, and I was so moved by that that nobody knows what gravity is yet. Nobody knows what it is. All we know is the effects it has. Every entity in the universe that has mass is exerting a pull on every other entity in the universe. So this book has mass and is pulling on that table. And the earth has mass and is pulling on the moon and the moon is pulling on the earth. And since the waters in the sea are movable, the pull causes rising fall and tides. And the force of the moon's pull on the tides is enormous. Because I tried to compute in my head how much the water weighs that rises, say, 20 feet in the middle of the Pacific and pulls all the coastlines out. And I thought it must be trillions of tons of water getting pulled by nothing. It's nothing. I mean, what is it? Does anybody know what it is? That the moon exists means it's pulling. And scientists don't know what that is. <laughs> so I'm preparing my message for T for G and, and thinking how does he keep me a Christian he is spirit and I have a spirit my spirit came alive when I was six years old I have no idea what that means something came into being that wasn't there life a spiritual life, not an intimate life, but a spiritual life. And then moment by moment, that is kept from de degenerating into carnality and non-existence. And who can describe what force is exerted by this, un this thing, I have no idea what it is called spirit, on this thing, I have no what it is called spirit. And therefore, who can define what power is necessary for that to happen? Is it a little power? Is that an easy thing to do? For a spirit to keep a spirit in being? You know, is it pounds? Is it kilowatts? Is it... What is it? 
I don't have any idea what it is. All I have is the Bible to go on. And the Bible says, uh, glory, majesty, authority, dominion to him who keeps me from stumbling. Mm. Mm. So it must be, it must be something. It must be really something. And all that was from this. <laughs> I mean, that approach. Why would you take an approach like that to this text, verse 24 in, in Jude? It's because I was just pondering gravity. That's strange. He was one of the foremost pioneers of the new scientific method. Gather data, formulate a hypothesis, conduct experiments, validate or reject the hypothesis. That was a new thing in the 16th, 17th century. People didn't do that. They, 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 they did science theoretically and um, deductively and, and philosophically, but as far as the meticulous care that he took with his experiments in light, you know, covering over all his windows, boring a hole in the wall, setting up a sophisticated angle for prisms and then figuring out another angle to try and another angle to try and, and validate and validate and validate what he was seeing. He became professor of mathematics at Cambridge when he was 27. He never married and his work habits were ruthless. One of his assistants left this record so intense, so serious upon his studies that he ate sparingly. Nay, oft times he has forgotten to eat at all. He very rarely went to bed before two or three o'clock in the morning, sometimes not until five or six, especially in the spring or the fall. He used to employ about six weeks in his laboratory uh, during those fall and spring seasons, the fire scarcely going out either night or day. He sitting up one night, I did another till he had finished his clinical experiments in the performance of which he was most accurate, strict, and exact." End quote. He was asked how he made his discoveries, and he answered, truth is the offspring of silent, offspring of silence and unbroken meditation. His prescription for loneliness was work, work, and more work. In his late twenties, his shoulder-length hair was silver gray by the time he was 30. Um, his mind was um, so advanced that his classes at Cambridge were empty. Nobody could understand what he was saying. <laughs> his legal responsibilities were to turn in his lectures to the administration and nobody had to be there. Some days he lectured to an empty room, and other days he just skipped it and went on, they said. I don't know why you'd lecture to an empty room, but um, might be a legal requirement or something. In 1665, oh, I skipped, a, I skipped a line. He confessed once that a problem caused him such a headache that he treated it by tying a band of cloth around his head and twisting it with a stick until he reduced the circulation in his brain and dulled the pain so that he could keep on working. In 1665, at the peak of the Black Plague, 8,000 people a week were dying in London. 
and the next year was the Great London Fire, and 13,000 homes were destroyed in four nights, and 87 churches, and I say that just to give the flavor of the weight of mortality that he was living next to in those in those days. He shared the Puritan convictions that this was the providence of God and judgment was upon London and the land. The precision he saw in the universe he attributed to the creation and providence of God. He said, were men and beasts made by fortuitous jumblings of atoms there would be many parts useless in them. Here a lump of flesh, there a member too much. Some kinds of beasts might have but one eye and some more than two. Unlike many thinkers, this is a quote from the author, unlike many thinkers today, he saw no conflict between science and religion and wrote that the world could not operate without God being present. Few things would have angered Newton more than the claim by a later generation of thinkers that his formulation of mechanical laws established the framework of a universe in which God is no longer a vital or even necessary part. So he was a theist and believed that theism was necessary for the orderliness and precision of the world that he was finding to be there as an object of scientific inquiry. At 19, he had written a confession of sin that went like this. Confessed, not turning nearer to thee for my affections, not living according to my belief, not loving thee for thyself. The Puritan era in England was from the 1560s to the 1660s. That was the century of the Puritans. So he was living in the subsequent generation and therefore all the legacy of the Puritan century was coming down to him and you can hear wonderful echoes of it both in his theism and his early faith, his early confessions. He went on to write 1,400,000 words on religion, more than all of his mathematics and physics that had made him so famous. He drew models of the temple. He regarded Solomon as the greatest philosopher. He calculated the end of the world to be 2060. <laughs> so we're on our way. Um, but, alas, he regarded the Trinity as a form of heresy. He was an Arian and didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He served in Parliament. <coughs> he became master of the mint and used his remarkable analytical skills to, to get into the crime scene in London and figure out how all the counterfeiters were doing their work and tricked them and imprisoned them and hanged them. He was absolutely ruthless in his role as master of the mint. Um, he became the president of the Royal Society of Science and ruled it as president with an iron hand, but put it on a financially secure 
footing. He was revered in his day uh, as a living God to many people because of his extraordinary scientific and mathematical abilities. People around the world wanted to visit him in his last decade. Ben Franklin pleaded for an opportunity and wouldn't get it. Voltaire pleaded, couldn't get it. Uh, he was so reclusive and alone in his scientific pursuits. Queen Anne knighted him, and he died painfully of, of bladder stones at the age of 84, March 20, 1727. The Puritans uh, could bequeath <coughs> to him a God who provided the stability and order and precision to warrant to new science, but the common grace that sustained his genius was not accompanied by the special grace of gospel faith, as far as I can tell. Uh, the price of his ruthless focus on scientific observation was very high. He missed the true nature of Jesus. He was in ceaseless war with other scientists, arguing this is one of the saddest things. Here's a man who's, a, who's the greatest mathematician in the world, perhaps the greatest scientist of his day, and he argued endlessly with other scientists about who did what first. Leibniz claimed to have discovered calculus, and he probably this author said he probably did. They probably did simultaneously without anybody robbing anything, and they both spent all their last decades arguing about who stole what from whom. And it sounded so peevish as I read it. Why, why, would, you, why would you need to? And yet it, it was evidently so much a part of a scientist's identity that I had the first breakthrough. I had the first breakthrough. And there was another man that nobody knows who claimed to have the, the breakthrough on gravity and to figure out planets. Another one claimed to have the breakthrough on light and the prism. And, and he was endlessly arguing about what he had accomplished first. And I just felt like, you know, I think if you'd seen the true Jesus, you might have been delivered from that desperate need to be the first and get all the credit for everything. For all his efforts at and astonishing discoveries, he was frustrated to the end from finding the one great all-integrating scientific law. Here's a quote. He was unable to find the universal principle he was seeking, gravity only being one element of it. The dream of his early manhood had taken the form of a nightmare that had lasted for 30 years. Even the presidency of the Royal Society, the mastership of the mint, a knighthood, and the publication of the greatest books of science ever written could not make the nightmare go away. End of quote. His eyes were the keenest ever, perhaps, to see the mysteries of the physical world, but they could not penetrate deeply enough into the glory to know the truth of the Maker. Einstein said of him, fortunate Newton, happy child of science, nature to him was an open book whose letters he could read without effort. Yes, but how much happier he would have been 
if he could have read the letters of the book of Scripture with the eyes to see the nature of Christ in the gospel. Great scientists have the great advantage of seeing the vastness of the universe and the God who made it. Newton said, I don't know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting my attention in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. That's exactly right. And the meaning of that ocean and how to cross it in peace is not given by science, but by that little boy embracing the divine Son of God as Savior. Something had happened to his brilliant mind that blinded him to certain beauty and truth he said of poetry, it is a kind of ingenious nonsense. That's a bad sign. It reminded me of the quote that uh, Darwin gave in his autobiography. I think I quoted it in The Desiring God. I'll read it to you. The same thing seems to have been happening with, with uh, Newton. Up to the age of 30, this is Charles Darwin in his autobiography, up to the age of 30 or beyond, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. And even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable pleasure in music, very great delight. But now, for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have tried to read Shakespeare and find it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. but. Why this should have caused the atrophy of that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. Mm -hmm. What a tragic end to a great mind. So I conclude, let us give thanks for the common grace that abounds in the discoveries and the gifts that God gives the world through those who do not know him. But let us not envy them, but look to Christ as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and by whom and for whom all things were made. So you get to know somebody like this and you just want to cry. You just want to cry. So smart. So we're very fortunate, aren't we, to be ordinary folks. <laughs> Not to be plagued with too much 
killing intelligence. God didn't want our intelligences to do that to us. He wanted it to open the world and open science and open the sky and the heavens and the sea and, and the Bible and poetry and scenes and music. What a world we live in. What a glorious world we live in. And, uh, so be thankful for special grace that opened our eyes to the, to the Savior <coughs> and, and may it may, may it open our eyes to all of the glory. Comments before we pray. Questions? I've said just about everything I know now. It's a short book. <laughs> Can you expand just a little bit more on poetry and what that shows when that love for poetry arose? Like what what's going on in the soul when you see that? Like what what's happening? Yeah, that's a good question. I said to the preaching guys in class last Wednesday, um, the preaching gift and the poetic gift are very similar. And I don't mean the ability to write good poetry. That's not what I mean. Very, very, very few people can do that. I can't do that. I mean, I have a very high standard of what good poetry is, and I mean, what I mean by the poetic eye and the poetic life is the ability to see more in what is there than what you see. In other words, on on the face of it is, and the illustration I gave was this this gravity thing. I mean, to walk. To walk through when the sun comes out, to walk through the world and see the sky and see birds, to, to hear your first robin sing about a month ago and know it's a robin. I know. I know what a robin sounds like. It doesn't sound like a cardinal. And to hear it for the first time in the spring and say, Welcome back, where have you been? And to look for him and you can't see him. And then to see your first robin. He's always up up high in the tree and he just chortling away and uh, and Jesus saw those kinds of things consider the birds consider the lilies and uh, and to, to hear them and to enjoy them and then to to see the apple blossoms down at the Anishabi Center just right right where are we that way just near my house the, the the center that's right behind the Indian Center there's these four apple trees and they were at their peak last week until that horrible wind blew through here knocked them to smithereens you know they would have i said no you got to see these four trees down at the anishabi center and i drove her by it was the night the day after the what the, the ground was snow white with these petals and, and i said it was beautiful <laughs> it was glorious so every spring i remember I'm illustrating what I mean by, by, by a poetic eye, which I desperately want to have. We always had a music concert in May in the first 20 years of Bethlehem. There's a choir concert, the spring concert, they called it. And I remember associating it with the peak of the apple blossoms between the two towers mm -hmm. across the street from the church, which are pink. They're not white. 
and uh, and and th at, there was a point where you couldn't see anything through these trees. They were so gloriously pink, and I would pass them on my way to hear this glorious music that we were going to hear from the choir. And those two things kind of juxtaposed in my mind. And those things have a, um, at one natural level, I think indescribable, wholesome, life-giving effect on your soul. I think the soul was made for beauty. Beauty through the eye, beauty through the ear, beauty of thought, beauty of spirit. We're made for beauty. God is beauty. And, uh, and then you add the new birth to that. And give me an example. A lady came up to me a couple of weeks ago after the Saturday night service, told me about her recent conversion at Bethlehem. And she said, this is her very words, she said, blue is bluer. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's, that's the uh, transposition of the natural world up into the spiritual world to see this is declaring the glory of God. This is not just the blue that's satisfying this remnant of image, God's image on my soul that even unbelievers have. This is now radiant with the one who made it and pointing to him and coming from him and being sustained by him and having some character of him and that gives it a whole new thing. So when that dies, when that eye dies because you're grinding out laws from assemblage of facts and music has ceased to be listenable and poetry has become, what are his words, this horrible phrase, um, it's a kind of ingenious nonsense. Um, you know something has died, you've lost something of the image of God. And, and you won't, you won't be as much of a useful person for others. Because we should just be doing this for each other all the time. Mm -hmm. We should be pointing. I remember, I shared joy as a double joy. And so when you stand on the, on the seashore, every normal, healthy human being on a sunrise or a sunset on the seashore wants to turn to somebody and say, isn't that awesome? And if there's nobody to turn to, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. We can turn up and say, thank you, but we're made to turn out and say, and, and Lewis, Lewis, he said, he said, dog is a man's best friend, but you can't turn to your dog and say, look at that. Look, look at that. And Dusty would just say, <laughs> I'm glad you're glad because that's why I live. You know? <laughs> but to have your wife there, or your friend, I mean, and you know, that's the meaning of friendship if somebody gets it. Right? When you read The Four Loves, the chapter on friendship is the, the friend is somebody you can turn to who gets it. You, you don't even have to say anything if you're both looking at the same thing. Can you think of a, a prominent <coughs> scientist? I mean, Lewis would be a good example of somebody who's got poetic senile and it probably increased as he got he, older, but 
but somebody who went the other way, who was went from being a factual machine to an awakening to beauty. I'm, I was sitting here trying to think if I can remember anybody <coughs> who who ended up because of a conversion went the, went the other way from where Darwin and Newton. Uh, Chesterton. I mean, I, I too don't know enough people to know whether they were scientifically narrow and confined and blind and then something happened and they became open to the beauty of music, the beauty of poetry, the beauty of nature. Um, but my guess is the testimony of, of everyone whose heart has flourished would say that their conversion gave a dimension to that, maybe even began it for some, but I, I don't. I just, I just think we all, wherever we are, because right in this room right here, there are some minds here that are very romantically oriented and, and nature oriented and beauty oriented, and some are very analytically oriented. And what's glorious about Lewis is that he was both, both to the max. And that's so rare. He was the most lucid, careful, logical thinker that you could ask for. And nobody saw more than he saw in a flower or in a human face. I'm, I'm listening right now on my iPad here. So, I mean, my iPhone says, give me a little taste of this. This is what you, this is what you do. You don't have a lot of time to read like me. Um, go get your little library app, click it like this. Took the impression yesterday, said Mark, that you and Steele hit it off together rather well. The great thing here, said Cossa, is never to quarrel with anyone. I hate quarrels myself. The hideous, that hideous strike. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening to this novel. Because I don't have time to read this novel. But I brush my teeth in the morning. Mm -hmm. I put on my clothes in the morning. I drive my car every now and then. <laughs> and I walk to church. And, and I, can, I can listen to an entire novel in two or three weeks. Like this. And for me, it's as good as reading. I'm just so riveted by this man's ability to... That Hideous Strength is the third in the trilogy of his science fiction. And uh, he says, I'm surprised he says it, but he just says it flat out in the front, this novel is a novel version of that, The Abolition of Man. Mm -hmm. The Abolition of Man, he would say, is his most important philosophical work, probably, on the nature of 20th century man. And this, this is a, an outworking of the abolition of... Of, of man. But B, I'm just going to say, all of us, wherever you are, nurture, nurture yourself, nurture your eyes, you know, get outside on a day like this and look up, go, go back to the pleasures of God or wherever I have those 11, those 11 uh, resolutions of Clyde Kilby, mm -hmm. where he says, resolve to pause and stare at a tree every day and not think what it is, but only and just marvel that it is. Trees really are amazing. How do you get the juice to the top of the tree? There's no heart. I know how blood gets from my toes to my head. A heart pump does it. That's understandable. I have no idea how sap gets to the top of a tree. None. Anybody can explain that to me? What, what is that? Capillarity? What, what is it? This is wood. 
<laughs> a tree is amazing. And the taller they get, the more amazing they are. They just can't be. You can't have leaves coming back into being 300 feet in the air of a redwood tree. And a car driving through the middle of a tree at the bottom. <laughs> Cultivate your capacities for amazement. So you won't worship without. Mm. Mm. A lot of boring worship services in the world where they're filled with people who've killed their capacities for amazement by watching TV. Hour after hour after hour. So that the only thing that excites them is the imbecility of sitcoms. And they have zero capacity to be blown away by glory of God. So be careful. The flesh is a deceiver. <laughs> <laughs>